All right. Well, we are now going to have God speak to us a little bit through his word. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one in the pew in front of you. Luke chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 35. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone, but they didn't break down, cry, repent, and give their life to Christ? Uh, most of the time, huh? And you know, it could have been a friend or a family member or a co-worker or just even a stranger. Sometimes when you share your faith, people just don't want to hear it. And there's a variety of reactions. I just find it interesting because I know I can't save anybody. I know only God can do it and he does it through the, through the gospel. And so when you start sharing your faith, you know, there's sometimes the people just kind of look at you with glassy eyes, zombie approach. They don't really respond. It's strange. They're just kind of listening. Like, is this going to get over? Other people kind of uh, respond like rabid dogs. You start saying, hey, I'm a Christian. Rah! They attack you. Don't you go stuffing your religion down my throat. And they have probably had some sort of negative experience with someone in the past who professed to be a Christian and they're sick and tired of hypocritical Christians. And when you try to share the gospel with them, all they can think of is you're trying to make me like hypocritical so-and-so. And I don't want to go there. They just don't want to go there. And then there's kind of the uh, person who is kind of the cork at sea. Just going along whatever way the waves carry them. They just want to make peace. You know, if you're religious, oh, you know, let's talk about your religion. And, you know, they aren't, it's not really for them, but they'll hear you out and they're glad it works for you. But that's it. There's kind of the sparring intellectual when you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. All of a sudden you can see them start rubbing their hands. Because they can't wait to talk to you about the natives in Africa. Or if God is such a good God, why is there so much evil in the world And they want to talk about evolution and they want to talk about whatever, but they just love to to argue. And then there's kind of the theological ostrich, you know, the atheist that doesn't know they're an agnostic. And they just, I just don't believe in God. And just in their head goes. And even though the scriptures say that They know there's a God because God has put a knowledge of himself in their heart and in their consciences and that they can see through creation what has been made. They have both internal and external testimony. They suppress that truth and unrighteousness and just say, I don't believe in God. Why are you talking to me about something that doesn't exist? And they just don't want to Talk about it because they have made a commitment to gabble their eternity on what they hope to be true. And then there's the religious chameleon. This is the pretending believer. The person who says they're a believer, but really they're not. They know some things about the Bible. They know Christian jargon. And they're really willing to duke it out. With anybody who doesn't, you know, go along with their brand of Christianity. They're quick to condemn others who don't agree with them, though they themselves live a rather duplicitous lifestyle. At church, they're very angelic. And during the week, they're very demonic. They're ambidextrous. Living one way at church and another way When they're away from church. And so as we go out in the world, as we witness to people, as we talk about, there's people like this, I mean, all over the place. And here we are. We all used to be one of these people or some other brand of one of these people. And that's why when I was talking about some of you were going, I know that guy. I know that girl. Yeah, I know that person. 
But it's always been God's plan to rescue people like this through one way and one way only. There's only one way anybody ever gets saved. And that is from hearing and believing in the gospel. It is his power for all who believe. And it's the only power for anyone who believes. It's the only way anybody ever comes to Jesus Christ is through hearing the gospel. And all of us who, before coming to Christ, we all had our excuses. And everybody else has their excuses. And you know, one of the most discouraging things as a Christian is when you're so excited about the Lord and you have an opportunity to share your faith and you start explaining and your your heart's pounding and you're just thinking they're going to come to the Lord. And then they don't have anything to do with it. They give you some weird response. And you can begin to think what? I, I should have given them this verse. For weeks and sometimes months afterwards, you know, if I only would have said it this way. You know, maybe I should have talked about this argument. Maybe I should have went this way. Maybe I should have went that way. Maybe I should have, you know, talked more about what God would do for them. Maybe I should have threatened them more with hell. I mean, you just, you know, you're tormented because really in your mind, what you're saying is, I wish I could have saved them. But you never can. No one ever can. Except God. He is the only one who saves anyone. You're just the deliverer of the goods. And then God saves it. And you know what's neat about it? Is when somebody is ready to be saved, you can't stop it. I've seen some pretty lousy gospel presentations. And people just totally break down. And their life has changed from that day forth. I even had a guy call me up one time when I was studying and I was too busy to meet with him. And he told the secretary, yeah, I want to meet with Jack right now. And she says, well, he can't meet. And he says, I'm coming down. And then came into my office and said, I want to become a Christian right now. Hey, what do you do with that? Well, I'll make an appointment <laughs> next week. You know, I'm really busy here working through this passage. So yeah, what's neat is, is when God's grace moves into a person's life, they come and nothing can stop it. And God uses very wimpy and anemic and bad gospel presentations. They still come to repentance and faith. And I'm not talking about people who make a decision. You know, there's, there's so many gimmicks in the church today of people who, you know, pastors trying to concoct ways to try and get people to, you know, put notches on their evangelism belt. Don't tell me that 300 people came to the Lord in your evangelism crusade unless 300 people are coming to church and growing in the Lord. Don't give me this, oh yeah, well they came forward after we, you know, did a play and, and got real emotional and got real excited and got real sad and they all came forward and they all cried and we told them that they were saved and sent them home and we've never seen them since. That, that's not salvation. That is just an emotional response and you've now aided in deceiving them by telling them there's something they're not. But what's interesting is, is you could be the greatest man ever born of women. You could be God in human flesh. You could give inspired sermons, perfect gospel presentations, and still be rejected. This is an encouragement. It's an encouragement. It's encouragement to know that even John the Baptist and Jesus were rejected. For the most part, by the people in their generation. And when you think about it, they had a lot more going for them than, than even we do. I mean, John was the voice crying in the wilderness. John was the one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, the messenger to prepare the way of the Lord himself who would appear to his people. John was the one who was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And then he preached the right message. And he did what the Old Testament said he would do. But you know what? They didn't believe him for the most part. Most rejected him. And Jesus comes along. 
I mean, John has already let everybody know he's coming. And Jesus is born of a virgin, just like it was prophesied. He came from the tribe of Judah, just like it was prophesied. He was born in Bethlehem, just like it was prophesied. Zacharias, Elizabeth, Joseph, Mary, Anna, Simeon, even Herod himself knew that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And do you think they all just kept silent? No, they told people. And even John the Baptist specifically pointed Jesus out to the crowd, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is pretty clear. Jesus comes on the scene preaching, declaring specifically that he is the Messiah. Nicodemus the Pharisee expressed the opinion of the Pharisees at that time when he snuck over to talk to him at night. And he didn't say, I believe. He said, we know, we Pharisees know that you are from God. For no one could do the works that you do unless God is with him. They knew. They knew. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, and though many came to listen to him, they rejected him. Jesus came to the towns and cities, and though many heard him and saw the miracles and were even healed by him, they still rejected him. They still rejected him. And so Jesus now is teaching a crowd, a large crowd of people. And this crowd of people is not quite sure about John. John has sent two of his disciples. John's in prison. I mean, his glory days down in the, by the the Jordan are over. He's in prison because he rebuked Herod. And John is in prison. He sends two of his disciples to have them ask Jesus, are you the expected one or not? And John isn't sure because he thought Jesus would come on the scene, beat up the Romans, set up his kingdom like the Old Testament prophesied, and it's not happening. So he gets confirmation, but Jesus doesn't say directly, yes, I am the Messiah. He does a bunch of miracles, preaches the gospel, and then says, go back and tell John. And then he quotes parts of two messianic texts, which describe what the Messiah would say and do and said, go tell John what you have seen and heard so that John would know beyond a shadow of a doubt based on the word of God itself that he was indeed the Messiah. And amazingly, Jesus, after this happens, turns to the crowd because the crowd, although John was the hot thing not too long ago, is now wondering, yeah, he's in prison now. You know, he must be out of favor with God, but that was not it. Jesus tells him, John is the greatest man ever born of women. The greatest one. Then more amazingly, he says, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, the guy who just gets in under the door, will be greater in the kingdom of heaven than John the Baptist was on earth. And Luke says the crowds, especially the tax gatherers, the sinners... They think this is great. Yeah. Why? Because they're the lowest scum of society. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't care how you low, how low you are on the social totem pole here. If you repent and believe me, you will be greater in the kingdom of heaven, even though you're the least person than the greatest man ever born and who lived on earth. And so they're excited about it. But the unbelieving religious leaders are not so excited. Because in elevating the repentant, humble, believing tax collectors, he has demoted the most respected religious elite in society because they didn't believe John, they wouldn't repent, and they wouldn't be baptized. And so this is where we're at. Luke 7, chapter 7, verse 31 And follow along as I read, because now Jesus is going to go after these religious leaders. He says this, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. 
And we sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now, from this portion of Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to give us three life lessons, and they're specifically directed at the leaders, but they apply to all of us. And the first is this, don't act like fickle children. Jesus just explained the greatness of John to the crowd. In doing so, he has condemned those who acknowledged, who, who refused to acknowledge that John was a prophet who refused to be baptized. In fact, in verse 30, if you look there, it says that the leaders rejected God's purpose for themselves because they refused to be baptized by John. And then verse 31, Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? Now, You think, well, is he talking about everybody? Well, specifically, he's just got through talking about the Pharisees in verse 30. And then right after this section in verse 36, it says, now one of the Pharisees. So before and after, he's talking about Pharisees. And so it's a good thing. It's probably uh, good to understand him to first and foremost be speaking of the Pharisees. But this would relate to anybody who rejected him. And Jesus is now going to tell us, he is going to make a comparison. He's thinking, he's asking, thinking out loud, what shall I compare the men of this generation, these unbelievers, specifically these Jewish leaders? And then in verse 31 and 32, Jesus begins to use a simile. A simile is an express comparison. When you use words like or as to compare one thing to another. And of course, in our culture, uh, we have tortured the word like. And it has like turned into a like all purpose, like filler word. And like lost all its meaning. If you know what I like mean. But the word is supposed to be used to make a comparison, to say this is similar to that. And so Jesus asked the question, what is this generation like? And then in verse 32, he says, they are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. Now, what is the marketplace? So the marketplace is the place where, you know, you go shopping, kind of the ancient mall. Back then, they didn't have refrigerators and freezers. And so most people went to the marketplace every day to get whatever you needed for that day. And so it was kind of one of the things you did for the day. Got a little exercise, got out of the house, were able to, the mothers were able to go visit with the um, other mothers and grandmothers and the vendors there. They would bring their little children and their little children would run around the marketplace and play. Why mom talked and shopped. It was kind of a social time. And when Jesus says they're like children in the marketplace, the Greek New Testament uses several words that could be translated children or speak of young people. This one here is pedion. It talks of very young children. They're talking, so, you know, they aren't super young. It can be used of infants even, but, you know, these maybe three, four, five, six, seven years old, they're little, they're little kids. They're little kids. And verse 32 in the middle says, and they say, that is the children in the marketplace, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And Jesus now is talking about the conversation between these little immature childish kids. One group wants to play the flute, pretend to flute. Let's dance. And he is saying, and this one group is calling out to this other group, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. And the other group says, we don't want to play. We don't want to play. They're being selfish. They're being fickle like children are. They're grumpy. They don't want to dance and they don't want to be happy. So the children want to play, say, okay, well, let's pretend and play funeral and funeral dirge. 
And the other kids go, no, we don't want to do that either. They don't want to be happy and dance. They don't want to play the sad song and pretend to cry. They just don't want to play. They can't be pleased. Nothing is good enough for them. They just don't want to go along. And Jesus says the people, especially the leaders of his generation, were like that. And you know what? People are like that in the church today. Fickle. Selfish. Capricious. The music, it's too loud. The music's too soft. It's too fast. It's too slow. We need more hymns. We need more choruses. We need more classics. There's not enough classics. We need more contemporary songs. There's too many classics. And the temperature in here, it's too cold. It's too dark. I can't hear. I hear too much. (laughs) The people here, they're not very friendly. The people here are too in your face. No one talked to me. Everybody just gathered around me. I just needed to get away. There's too many people here. There's not enough people here. The donuts are too sweet. The coffee's too black. (laughs) Can't be pleased. Complainers, grumblers. And the root of all of this is discontentment. Ungratefulness. Which gives birth to grumbling and complaining. When you people, they just, you just cannot make them happy. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Does that describe you? Well content with insults and distresses. That's how God wants us to all be. In Philippians 4, 11 and 12, Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble beings. I know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Does that describe you? No matter what happens, it's like, hey, God's in charge. God's in control. I know Jesus and you can't take that away from me. Ninner, ninner. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, but godliness actually is a means of great gain under a certain condition. When accompanied by contentment. Which means there is no godliness unless there is contentment. He says, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. His whole point is, why are you amassing and amassing and amassing stuff for yourself? You think you're going to take it with you? I mean, come on. Even if you were extremely rich, like an Egyptian pharaoh, they're going to plunder your tomb. Right after you die. I'm taking on world tour. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.5, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Does God want you to be content? Of course he does. Of course he does. Contentment is the Christian's crown. It makes them different from the world. What about being filled with the Holy Spirit? How does Paul say that should manifest itself? Ephesians 5.20 Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. I mean, you need to be thankful for your house and your car and your clothing and your food. We tell this to our kids all the time. Did you pray? Did you give thank God for your lunch today? Uh... And for about a week, they get a note in there, a verse on their lunch every day. Don't be a pagan. (laughs) Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Now that is, 
That's clear. Are you supposed to be thankful? Yes. When? Only all the time and in every circumstance. Other than that, you don't have to. And what happens if you're not? Well, you know who you're, you then become labeled with? Paul, when speaking of the ungodly in the last days in which he, we live in 2 Timothy 3, 2, describes them in these words, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. And then he goes on to explain a bunch of other things that they are, other ungodly character traits. You need to be grateful. What does the Bible say about grumbling and complaining? Read 1 Corinthians 10 sometimes. He talks about the, the Old Testament, all these things that happened to people and why it happened to people. And he says, let us not do this, nor this, nor this, nor this. And one of the things he says we aren't supposed to be, 1 Corinthians 10, 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. God killed people for grumbling. And what if he started doing that today? That would be interesting. Somebody goes saying, it's too cold in here. <clears throat> Mildred, Mildred. Paul in Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And he goes on to say, after he says that, that this is how Christians give testimony to the world that they are Christians. By not following the same pattern of grumbling and complaining and discontentment that the world falls into. James, who is often very direct and straightforward, says it this way. James 5, 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another. So that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. That's clear. Don't complain. God's right at the door. He'll reach in and take you out. Discontentment, ungratefulness, complaining, grumbling, disputing are all signs of unbelief. A refusal to believe God. A denial that he has been good to you. Listen. We all deserve hell. We all deserve outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You remember the little parable of the rich man who went to Haiti, who was in agony in these flames? That, that's what we deserve. And so anything better than that, we should praise God for. I think it would be very good if we all got to go to a third world country for three months. And, you know, live there. And come to church and sit on a dirt floor. And not have air conditioning when it's 115. And then we'd come back here and go, oh, praise God. I love my view. I mean, it may be old and material's warm, but oh, it's nice, it's nice. You know, it only takes a little bit of hardship and all of a sudden you realize just how wonderful we have it here. We've got it really good. And that's why you need to stop and you need to realize how great God is in blessing us so much. And I'm telling you, when you live in the richest nation in the world that consumes most of the world's resources and you sit around and you know, this is not right and I don't like this and that... I am telling you, get back from that person. And if that's you, you need to repent. A lightning bolt should come down. So don't go that way. Where you just, you can't be satisfied. You just committed yourself to just not play. Secondly, don't justify your stubborn, hateful rebellion. Jesus has just characterized the unrepentant Jewish leaders as these fickle, capricious children who don't want to play. They don't want to be happy. They don't want to be sad. They just don't want to play. Now Jesus goes away from the comparison and he just makes direct statements. Look at verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. 
John was about as ascetic as you could get. Asceticism is when you, you just, you know, deny, very disciplined, very rigid lifestyle where you deny yourself all the pleasures and all the enjoyments that everybody else enjoys. You just, you know, go away. I mean, you read in church history, there are guys who crawled up what they called uh, stylobite monks where they would crawl up in these poles and get a little platform. They'd live up there for years on a post. Say, you know, I'm going to be godly. I mean, look at John. Look at his life. Here he was in the wilderness, one of the hottest places in the face of the planet. Didn't have a palace to live in, probably living in a cave, sleeping on the ground. He wore all this hot, scratchy camel hair clothing, the clothing of the poor. He ate bugs that he just foraged around from and found honey and, you know, kind of chased away the bees and gouged it out and tried to make the bugs taste good. It was sick. I mean, he wasn't some sort of well-to-do guy with a Rolls Royce. And look at verse, the end of verse 33. How did the religious leaders respond to John and his, his asceticism and his ministry in the wilderness? He has a demon. He's demon-possessed. Look at that. Look at it. He's just out there. He's all scruffy. He needs a haircut. Yeah, he needs to get some new clothes. He he doesn't dress like a Jew. He's not even living in the house. I mean, look look at he just he's not responsible. Never goes to the marketplace. But John was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was prophesied about. He came. He was Elijah who was to come. His father was visited by an angel. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. He preached repentance. He brought people back to prepare them to receive the Messiah. And the most educated, the most well-respected people who knew the Old Testament the most said, he's demon-possessed. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Oftentimes those who are of their father, the devil, who are spiritually dead, who can't even please God themselves, go on the attack and attack those who are great in the sight of God. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 44. And here... Jesus is speaking again to the Jewish leaders. He's told them that they were enslaved to sin. They didn't know the truth. They were bloodthirsty murderers who were doing the deeds of their father. And they don't know what Jesus is talking about, but they think Jesus is implying that they were had illegitimate births, and so they're quick to say, listen, pal, we're of our father, Abraham. That's how we know we're right, because we're children of Abraham. And then Jesus decides to tell them, whose children they really are. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Pause. No one says anything. If I speak the truth, why do you not believe? Pause. Implied answer. Because you're of the devil. He who is of God hears the words of God for this reason. You do not hear them because you are not of God. That's pretty direct. Jesus just lays them out. Jesus says, listen, you don't even know God. You are just unrepentant, stubborn sinners who hate. That's who you are. Murderous in your heart. 
And what is amazing is this. Is here you have the children of Satan prating as the greatest religious leaders in society. They are doing the will of Satan, but they're attacking the people who are doing the will of God and saying that they are the children of Satan. Totally twisted. Totally backwards. That's what Satan loves to do. Just take things and just totally mess them up. To deceive people. And this is how they responded to John. John was so godly, so different from them. His living conditions, his clothing, his diet, his method was so different from them that they said, well, he is so different from us. And since we are the godly elite, he must be demon possessed. And you find people like this in every church. People who are offended at the godliness of other people. Who are convicted because so and so is so godly and on fire for the Lord. Compared to them, they they look like an ice cube. You know, maybe somebody doesn't watch TV or they don't listen to secular music or they don't, you know, read fiction books or, you know, they've just made this commitment in their life that they only read the Bible and they only read other books about the Bible and that's all they're going to read. They don't even read the newspaper or any popular magazines or anything. They just, they've made this conviction in their life and they're sticking to it rigorously. They're sharing the gospel with everyone they meet. They've made a commitment that every time the church doors are open, I'm showing up and I'm serving and I'm getting involved. And then those who are not like this, when they're around them, they feel bad. Because compared to them, they they look rather mediocre and or dead, spiritually speaking. And so people like this often go on the attack. Because the godly person's life is rebuked to their mediocrity. And they often go around and, you know, they may not say that person has a demon, but they might as well. They go around and say, yeah, so-and-so, you know, they're really fanatic. I mean, they're legalistic. (laughs) No, they aren't. They are not legalistic. But that's what they do. You know, so-and-so, they're they're really fanatical. They, They haven't really grown in the Lord very long, you know, implied like me. And as soon as they mature after a while, then they become godly, wrong, mediocre like me, wrong. But that's what they do. You see, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, talks about Satan working in the sons of disobedience. Satan works in the sons of disobedience. 2 Timothy 2.26 says that unbelievers are held captive by Satan to do his will. And these people are in the church and they often attack those mature on fire people who want to serve the Lord, who have strong convictions in a disciplined life. And what does he do? He takes these people and he tries to disqualify them. He tries to discourage them. He tries to make them mediocre too. And he uses professing believers They're kind of like those dust balls you find in the dark places of your house under the bed. You know, they they don't start out a dust ball. They start out just dust. And then they cling to other pieces of dust. And that's how they are. You know, they're little complainers and grumblers. And they go out and they start, you know, finding somebody else to stick to. Yeah. Yeah, What do you think of the, the lighting in here? Yeah, it's not very good. Yeah, yeah. I'll shoo. And then pretty soon somebody else comes over and hears them talking. Oh, yeah, you guys. Oh, yeah. Pretty soon they're off in some dark corner. That's how it works. They're in the far corner of the parking lot. They're away from everybody and grumbling and murmuring. I mean, you just go out there on Sunday. You can see them. Get a bunch of people and walk over there and say, hey, what are you talking about? (laughs) Someone wants to attract you into their complaining dust ball. You just reprove and rebuke them. You need to be content. Be glad you're not in hell. And Jesus makes a second comparison. Look at verse 34. The son of man has come eating and drinking. So John came 
Eating no bread and drinking no wine, Jesus does the opposite. If you remember, when Matthew started following Christ, he he, he had been living among the scum of society. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the riffraff. And so he comes to Christ. He is so thrilled about his new salvation that he holds a big party and he tells them, Come on, I want you to meet somebody. And Jesus goes and he goes to this party. And the Pharisees are like... And even John the Baptist's disciples are, because now Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't realize that they themselves were sinners. They didn't realize that the people who need the word of God the most are not other rabbis. But people who are sinners. And Satan, again in a very sneaky strategy, often convinces those who know the word of God the most, the scholars, to shun and stay away from the people who need to know what they know the most. Go figure. And don't... Misunderstand this. Jesus didn't eat with the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes because he enjoyed their sin. Luke makes it clear he gathered with them to call them to repentance. Don't give me this. Well, yeah, I go to the bar every Friday night. You know, to associate with uh, sinners. Yeah, but do you call them to repentance or do you enjoy their sin? There's a difference. Though Jesus and John preached the same message, their ministry styles were radically different. Radically different. Jesus traveled through Israel. Jesus went from town to town. Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jesus taught in the synagogues. Jesus dressed like a Jew. Jesus ate normal food like a Jew. Jesus went from house to house lived in the dwellings of Jews. And what was their response? Look at the middle of verse 34. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus, because he's a normal person, is a glutton. Just stuffing his face totally out of control in his eating, just pounding down the donuts. And he's a drunkard, he's an alcoholic, he's just inebriated all the time, he's staggering around. Is that right? No. He was never gluttonous, he was never drunk. He never sinned a single time in his life, but that's what they accused him of. When they say he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, they had that part right. But what they meant by that is he is a friend who enjoys what sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes do, which was wrong. And the lesson we need to learn from this is that you can be the greatest, godliest prophet and forerunner Messiah. You can be God incarnate and walk around the face of the earth and only do good and only preach the truth all the time and never sin and still be rejected by those who are stubborn and unrepentant and who hate. That is exactly what happened to John That's exactly what happened to Jesus. John was way over here in Mr. Self-Denial and Wilderness. Jesus was Mr. Common, be among the people. And they rejected them both. They wouldn't have the truth from this, and they wouldn't have the truth from that. Don't be like that. Don't be like capricious children who will not hear. Third, listen to wisdom's children. So Jesus compares the Jewish leaders and many in his generation to these capricious, fickle children playing in the marketplace. One group wants to play, the other doesn't. One group wants to sing happy song, they say no. They want to do the dirge, no. So they switch. Nothing. They just won't play. The same way John comes in the wilderness, they won't have him. Jesus comes to their town, they won't have him. John is a demon. Jesus is gluttonous. And then notice Jesus' response in verse 35. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. By all her children. The word vindicated is literally to be shown to be right, to be proven correct, to be revealed, to be righteous. Matthew's account reads, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, not her children. 
And what, what is what is being said here? Well, there's two possibilities, but they both have basically the same outcome. Either Jesus is saying is wisdom is vindicated by her children. In other words, the people who believe in Jesus and John who repent and are saved, their life will reveal the life of wisdom. Or it is that wisdom produces deeds Deeds of wisdom, deeds conforming to the truth. But since the people who do the deeds are the children of wisdom, it doesn't really make a difference. And again, wisdom is not just knowing things. It's not just knowing the truth. Wisdom is knowing the truth and knowing how to apply the truth and applying the truth to your life. That's what makes you wise. Though Jesus and John the Baptist had these radically different ministry lifestyles, both preached repentance. Both preach repentance. Both fulfilled prophecies predicted about them. Their deeds were true. They taught what was right. They lived godly lives. And the people who accepted John accepted Jesus. And they believed and they followed. And they were the children of wisdom or the children that wisdom produces. But the religious leaders... The people who are experts in the law, the people who knew the scriptures the best and knew the truth the most, they rejected and would not have Jesus or John. Instead, they accused John of having a demon and Jesus of being an immoral drunkard. They hated him both. So what have we learned? One, don't be like fickle, capricious children who are unwilling to have the truth no matter what package it comes in. The Bible says complaining and grumbling and gratefulness are the offspring of unbelief. And if that characterizes your life, you just need to repent of that. You need to get over that. That is an ungodly characteristic. God does not want you complaining. He does not want you to be ungrateful. And he does not want you grumbling. You need to confess that to God and get over it. Secondly, don't try to justify stubborn, hateful rebellion by attacking those who are living the truth. If you're around people who are godly and have strong convictions, instead of condemning them because they're on fire for the Lord and they're trying to do whatever they can to be godly, why don't you just confess your mediocrity instead? And don't go calling them legalists. They are not legalists. Personal convictions are those self-imposed regulations that you place upon your own life because you know your own weaknesses so that you can avoid sin and pursue God. Every godly Christian, every man and woman, any Christian biography you ever read you will find somebody who is disciplined and has lots of personal convictions. That does not make you a legalist. What makes you a legalist is when you try to impose upon other people your convictions and try to make them submit to your convictions. That makes you a legalist. But just having strong convictions is necessary. You know, maybe you love reading so much that you know in, from the past that it has consumed you. And you've wasted hours and hours and hours and even neglected things you were mandated to do because you were just drawn away in your westerns or whatever. And so you just make a personal conviction. I don't read westerns anymore. Okay. Good for you. Does that mean I can't? No. But for you, you can't go there. It could be watching TV. It could be a hobby. It could be sewing. I don't know. It doesn't matter. You look at your life. Are you doing the things God wants you to do? Yes or no? And if you are not doing them or you're not doing enough of them, you have to ask yourself, what is getting in the way? And you may have to make choices and say things, say no to things that are good and fine and not even sin. I mean, it's the Bible doesn't say thou shalt eat grasshoppers and honey. But for John, he needed to be out there preaching as much as he could. And so when he had a break, he ran out in the brush and ate bugs. 
Okay, that's what he had to do. Okay, he did it. But don't condemn those who are trying to go all out for Christ. Even if it seems a little extreme to you, pray for them, encourage them. Maybe you should learn from them. And third, when you're making assessments of people in the church, don't go by popular Christian opinion. Don't go subscribe to Christianity astray and find out what the truth is. Instead, you open this book and you look at this book and you say, okay, who's conforming to this book and who's not? Who is producing fruit like this book says and who's not? You know, you need to read 1 John if you haven't. And take a note of all the times it says, there are some who say and they are compared with those who what? Do. There's a lot of sayers out there who have strong opinions and oh yeah, yeah. They have a morbid fear of anything zealous for God. Now you find people who are saying and doing, whose character and fruit of their life shows that they're pursuing God hard, and you be like them. Don't be like the people who sit in their throne with their slingshots and pop people who are trying to make their ways straight. There are many religious pretenders in the church. Don't follow them. Every good tree produces good fruit. Go after the fruit bearers. So what have we learned here? Hey, pretty clear. Don't be like the little children who just don't want to play no matter what. Don't try to justify your rebellion and your hate. Don't be a complainer. Don't be a grumbler. Don't be unbelieving. And when you're making assessments, you go by the book, not popular opinion, not tradition. The book. If it matches with the book, it's okay with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've learned just from Jesus' assessment of his generation and how it is so applicable to our lives as well. And Father, I know that all of us have fallen into these same sins because we all, like sheep, have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. But Father, we thank you that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, to bear our iniquities, to be crushed in our place. For by his stripes we are healed. And Father, I pray for those here who may not know you. I pray that they might give their life to you. And Father, if there are people here that really have come to realize that their hearts are often full of grumbling and complaining and discontentment, I pray that they would confess that, repent of it, and be more thankful, more glad, more rejoicing that father they would compare what we have in this country with what most people have in the world and what we have waiting for us in heaven with what they deserve which is hell and father that our attitudes would reveal that we are people so full of joy as we have escaped your wrath which we have deserved and that our joy our contentment our godliness our willingness to believe your truth will show the world that we are your children and impact it for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.